The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. I have a message for you today that I pray will lift your heart, but also open your mind. We are, John Wesley says, what we are taught. And if what we are taught does not follow carefully the teachings of Scripture, then the resultant behavioral life and the resultant emotional life will be marred in the life of a Christian. Let me go back. I began to touch on this last Friday, but let me go back and we're going to start there today. I'm going to review that. And then I'm going to take you forward into probably one of the the great lies that we've been taught that many of you will believe, and I have believed it, and it was very detrimental to my life in Christ. Now, can I just tell you plainly where I'm coming from? I want Jesus. I want everything Jesus has for me. I want to be filled full with his power to be a bold witness for him and to bear much fruit for him to the praise of the Father. I have no political agenda. I have no theological agenda. I come wanting to hear honestly what does the word say and where it differs from my experience, then my experience has to come in line with the word because it's my authority. I'm not humanistic. I'm not liberal. I am a conservative. And by conservative, I mean I hold to the original. I conserve the moral values of the original. I am not a progressive. If you are progressive, you are not a Christian. Because progressives, by their very definition, want to cast out the old and create something that suits now. I'm not willing to do that. I want the Word of God straight and plain and unvarnished and where I am convicted of sin, I want to quickly repent. I want that removed from my heart, and I want to walk clean in Jesus. I want all he has for me. My heart is hungry for my Lord Jesus, and I'm looking forward to eternity with him. So let's go back. Let's look at some history. Hang with me. Hang with me, we're going to talk about some history and some theology, and I'm going to show you where a major change occurred that has dramatically impacted the evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal church of today. And it has to be corrected. In my heart, it had to be corrected 
I suspect it may need to be corrected in your heart. So let's go. When Calvin brought forth and the other reformers, Martin Luther, they brought forth their teachings. They were used by Jesus to break away from the Roman Catholic hierarchy and the power they held and the sway politically and theologically that they held. God used these reformers in mighty power. But then, in 1588, a young man was ordained, Jacob Arminius. And he differed with John Calvin, and he differed with Luther. He believed that the blood of Jesus Christ could utterly transform a man's life and change that man or that woman that boy or that girl, into a person who no longer walked in sin. Now, that was very controversial because at that point, they all believed in what is called the sinning Christian. Jacob Arminius said, that is discounting the blood of Jesus and stepping on it and insulting it. The blood of Jesus is not like the blood of lambs and goats in the Old Covenant. The blood of Jesus utterly changes a man, makes him new, and gives him the power to walk in victory over all sin and carnality. Now, there was held a council of Dort in 1618. This was just a few years after Arminius had died. It was to be a fair and open discussion, but when the representatives from the Arminius view arrived, they discovered that it was not fair and open. They were roundly condemned, and lives were threatened. John Calvin, if he disagreed with a man, he had one man burned at the stake simply because they disagreed about the Trinity. This was not Christian. I have often doubted whether John Calvin was even a Christian. His behavior was not like that of Jesus Christ. And I've heard the argument, well, the times were different then. No, the times were not different then. There were desperate times with the Romans, and there were desperate times in other places. And the Apostle Paul and others showed great love and compassion, and they never advocated or burned someone at the stake. That's foolishness. But this was the Council of Dort, and Arminius was roundly, after his death, condemned. Now things stayed pretty steady. Slowly, people grew in their understanding of what Arminius was teaching. But finally, there came a man that the Lord brought on the scene who sought desperately to be holy before God. His name was John Wesley. He was born in 1703. He died in 1791. So his cry was to be righteous and holy before God. And so even in college, he formed a, a holiness club. The church he founded was called Methodist. 
the method for being holy. Now, the Methodist Church today is turning away from holiness completely and have gone utterly the way of the world. It breaks my heart. I came out of a Methodist background with my grandma and grandpa. And Methodism in that day would not have accepted homosexuality or transvestites uh, trans, uh, or or pedophiles or any of the other wickedness of our culture in our day. But let's go back to John Wesley. John Wesley taught an amazing doctrine. He taught that a man came to Jesus Christ, was converted, and was changed, stopped sinning, no longer by the blood of Jesus, walked in disobedience to the commands of God. He walked clean. And then he came into the understanding of the second work of grace. And the second work of grace was simply a crisis moment in a person's life where they, after much struggle with their old nature, finally came to a point where they said, this nature has to go. I have to be free of this. This inward struggle I can't tolerate anymore. And he said, in that crisis moment, they could be entirely sanctified. And he said that a church will not make progress and told his itinerant preachers, a church will not grow and make progress unless constantly the pastor is urging people to go on to the total commitment to Jesus Christ and the second work of grace. Methodism grew very quickly. They had their class meetings. There was a real earnestness in Methodism. They wanted desperately to be holy before God, to walk in the second blessing. And these precious people were the very foundation of, of America. They were righteous people. They were good people. And they spread out over our land and had a profound impact Then we come to a story, and I'm going to share part of that story with you. With you, there was a a black man, William Seymour, and this black man was called to preach a series of meetings in 1906 in Los Angeles. Now, he had sat in the classroom of a man by the name of Charles Fox Parham. And Parham had a school, um, let's see if exactly where it is. Well, I'm going to pass that. But he had a school, but he would not let Seymour, because of the racial issues, he wouldn't admit him 
to the school in Texas because of Jim Crow laws. And so Seymour was so adamant that he wanted to be a part, he was allowed to sit outside the classroom in the hallway. And there he began to learn about speaking in tongues out of the New Testament. And they were crying out for God to bring those wonderful gifts of Pentecost back into their lives. It was in Bonnie Brace Street that after he was locked out of the church where he went to lecture, that men and women began to gather and worship God on the on the porch till finally the porch was beginning to give way and they found a humble facility, dirt floor, on Azuzu Street in L.A. Now, in that place, the Holy Spirit came in power. And in that place, Pentecostalism was born following the charismatic movement. All of that sprang out of what happened at Azusa Street. Now, some churches today did not come out of Azusa Street like the Assemblies of God. It was more linked directly to Wesley the Nazarene Church and other holiness churches find their roots in John Wesley and many of them in what happened at Azusa Street where the power of God fell and lives were totally transformed and changed. Now, I'm going to read a short piece from a book by Pastor Jim Kerwin, Pastor Teacher Jim Kerwin. He's a wonderful brother of mine. I love him dearly. Um, I count him one of my very finest friends and fellow confidant. But he's written a book. It's entitled The Rejected Blessing, An Untold Story of the Early Days of the Pentecostal Movement. Now, I want to tell you where you can read this book free of charge or you can order it. It's found at finestofthewheat.org finestofthewheat.org I'll give that address for you one more time later in the broadcast. But let me share this. I want to share with you, William Seymour was baptized in the Holy Spirit, although he was not the first one at Azusa Street to be baptized, and he began to speak in other tongues, other languages. And let me read now. From those holiness men like Parham, that's where he went to school in Texas, and William Seymour, the experience of sanctification that is to be made utterly holy, to be totally regenerated by the blood of Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. They now were having to walk in a new area because now the Holy Spirit had come in power 
And where did that fit in their theology? Entire sanctification, as they understood it, had always been a second work of grace, a second step. The baptism in the Holy Spirit was now a third step. To them it was perfectly logical, however. These were the steps of salvation in their understanding at Azuzu Street. 1. Salvation and regeneration followed by water baptism. Remember the Peter package? This is a part of the same thing Peter taught. They were following the word of God. Salvation was received and regeneration came. You know what the word regenerate means. It means if my arm is cut off and slowly a new arm grows out, that's a regenerated arm. So they're saying salvation comes and a person is changed. They're no longer a drug addict. They've left their life of sin. The Holy Spirit has come in and circumcised their hearts, followed by water baptism. Two, they believed a crisis experience of sanctification in which the believer received a pure heart free from indwelling sin, thus making the believer a clean vessel ready to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not taught today. In fact, it's poo-pooed today in the church. But this is what the foundation was of Methodism, the greatest, probably the greatest spiritual movement in the history of America, believed unitedly what I've just shared with you. They believed in the second work of grace where a believer was given a clean vessel Now, third, at Azusa Street and William Parham from Texas believed that the Holy Spirit and power with tongues and other things manifesting, the gifts of the Spirit manifesting, they believed that that came subsequent to an experience of being made utterly holy. From this three-step understanding of God's process in the believer's heart, came the very familiar, old-time, oft-repeated testimony, Bless God, I'm saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. That used to be a very common saying that I heard as a child. So, as it happened, entire sanctification, holiness people, were those upon whom the Holy Spirit fell in those early years of the 20th century. Now, it was through these people that the message and the blessing of the Holy Spirit spread. Like the woman at Jesus' tomb, they were the first ones to bear witness to this wonderful, powerful, end-time work of God. How is it, then, that the Pentecostal charismatic circles today Most of us hear nothing about the blessing of entire sanctification. How is it that there is so little clear teaching on the need of power and the ability to be holy? Why is it that we receive no instruction on the desire and power of God to make us really and practically holy? 
to give us hearts that are pure and free from any indwelling sin. This is part of our Pentecostal foundation and heritage. Will God be willing and able to repeat and exceed Azuzu Street in our generation unless we too have pure, clean hearts awaiting a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit? It's an eye-opener to read an intriguing one-of-a-kind book entitled Azuzu Street Papers. It contains highly readable, photographically reproduced, tabloid-sized reprints of the Apostolic Faith, the publication of the Apostolic Faith Mission, that is, Azuzu Street Mission, for the period September 1906 to May of 1908. It affords the opportunity to read the words penned by people who were living in the midst of the mightiest outpouring of the Holy Spirit since Pentecost in Jerusalem. It is our heritage, and especially if we long for a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit in these days, we should know what God did in the humble warehouse in Los Angeles a hundred years ago. Even these nine decades later, the wonder urgency and vibrancy of these revival-bred exhortations and reports deeply moved me each time I dipped into the book and I have read the entire papers and I testify they are astonishing. Although the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues probably will be the focus of most eager readers of the Azusa Street papers. I challenge them to do something special while reading. Look for every place where sanctification is mentioned. It may be in a teaching or a doctrinal statement or a testimony or reports of what occurred in various meetings in far-flung outreaches. Those with a heart for missions will perhaps stand amazed at the reports from overseas, Africa, China, India, Scandinavia. If my readers underline every mention of sanctification, they will discover what I did. They will have marked every page of every issue of the apostolic faith. The experience of receiving a pure heart from God as a second definite work of grace in the believer was almost universally the experience for tens of thousands touched by God's move at Azusa Street. These early Pentecostal saints had a divine certainty in their hearts based on clear scripture teaching and their personal heart-cleansing experience with the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit desired to fill clean vessels, that is, hearts purified by faith. Laying out the doctrinal statement of the church, the movement, and the first issue of the apostolic faith, after make its declaration about justification, said, Sanctification is the second work of grace and the last work of grace. Sanctification is that act of God's free grace by which he makes us holy. John 17, verses 15 and 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. First Thessalonians 4, 3. 
1 Thessalonians 5.23, Hebrews 13.12, Hebrews 2.11, Hebrews 12.14. Sanctification is cleansing to make holy. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is a gift of power upon the sanctified life. Now, just so there can be no mistake about what is being declared on the same page, in the very next column, there is a signed article by William Seymour entitled, The Precious Atonement. After first stating that there is forgiveness in the atonement, this Azusa Street pastor goes on to declare, We receive sanctification through the blood of Jesus. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Sanctified from all original sin, we become sons of God. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Hebrews 2.11 It seems that Jesus would be ashamed to call them brethren if they were not sanctified. He continues, Then you will not be ashamed to tell men and demons that you are sanctified and are living a pure and holy life, free from sin. <laughs> Let me stop. That's anathema today. When I made that declaration from the pulpit of an Anglican church, they promptly kicked me out. Literally. They canceled my contract for the church meeting in their place for the National Prayer Chapel a week before Easter, and they kicked us out of the church. They said, that is anathema. That is heresy. But, oh, believe me, they want the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They just don't want the sanctification. They want to be sinning Christians. That's the norm in today's church, and it's wrong. It's utterly destructive to the work of God. And it explains why, in today's culture, the church is no longer salt and light to transform the culture into a holiness people that God can do something with. This has to change. A life that gives you power over the world, he continues, the flesh and the devil. The devil does not like that kind of testimony, this precious atonement. We have freedom from all sin. Though we are living in this old world, we are permitted to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We that are messengers of this precious atonement ought to preach all of it. Justification, sanctification, healing, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and signs following. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? God is now confirming his word by granting signs and wonders to follow the preaching of the full gospel in Los Angeles. And then Jim Kerwin continues, Even more teaching on sanctification appears on the same page, and more appears in two columns on the next page of the same issue. And that's just the first issue of the apostolic faith. I could cite numerous other examples in other issues. 
If this second blessing sanctification was the standard teaching of Azuzu Street and all of its far-flung daughter works around the world, how is it that within six years' time, the vast majority of the movement had thrown their sanctification teaching of two centuries overboard in favor of something else? In part, the change resulted from the fact that more and more seekers who came to Azuzu came from non-holiness backgrounds, believers with little understanding of the importance of the Wesleyan sanctification. But these people, and even a good number of holiness people, were won away by the most influential agent of change, a man named William H. Durham. 1873 to 1912. As mentioned earlier, Durham was a powerful, charismatic, used in a non-theological sense here, Chicago-area preacher who, hearing of the mighty outpouring in Los Angeles, made his way to the humble warehouse on Azusa Street to receive his Holy Spirit baptism. He finally prayed through on March 2, 1907. It's ironic, as we shall see, that Durham's testimony appears in the February-March 1907 edition of the Apostolic Faith publication. In an article entitled, A Chicago Evangelist Pentecost, laying out his spiritual autobiography as he leads up to recounting his Azusa Street encounter, Durham says, I saw and grasped by faith the truth of sanctification and the Spirit witnessed to my heart that the work was done, and the Holy Ghost wonderfully wrought in my life. He is, of course, referring to the doctrine of entire sanctification that came from John Wesley that we've been introducing today. He finishes his letter with a powerful testimony to receiving the Holy Spirit at Azuzu Street. Now, Durham's name also appears in a 10-line mini-report about the Pentecostal work in Chicago on page 1 of the January 1908 edition of the Apostolic Faith. There is this short report which appears to be completely innocuous. Scriptural phrases that would have pleased any evangelical or Pentecostal reader of the publication and enlisted many an amen. We've stood by the simple gospel from the very first, preaching only Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, nothing in that statement raised a red flag at the time. Um, An eyewitness account of the ministry in Chicago follows in the very next, next paragraph of the same issue. One of the first people to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Los Angeles had become a first-string player on the Azusa Street ministry team and was to become Mrs. William Seymour less than four months later. Nevertheless, that phrase, preaching only Jesus Christ, may have been a Freudian slip on the part of Durham. Pastor Tom George Farkas in his doctoral dissertation on Durham's life and ministry, says, 
immediately after Durham's Pentecostal baptism at Azusa Street in February 1907, he ceased preaching the doctrine of Christ's sanctification. From the day the Holy Spirit fell on me and filled me, he said, I could never preach the second work theory again. He still held it in theory, but could not publicly proclaim proclaim it anymore. Indeed, not only was Durham no longer preaching sanctification as a second work, he was formulating a new and distinctive view of sanctification— And while he was formulating his doctrine, he was very busy and very successful. In the two years between his 1908 report in the Apostolic Faith and 1910, Durham formed his own ministerial association so that he could provide ministerial credentials from his Chicago church. His meetings were so well attended that his North Avenue mission became known as the Azuzu Street of the Midwest and he became almost the de facto leader of the Pentecostal movement when misfortune hit two of the other leaders. First, Charles Parham's ministry was rocked by public scandal, and then one of William Seymour's most trusted Azuzu Street workers, the ministry's editor, made off with a national and international mailing list for the Apostolic Faith publication, setting up her own publication with a stolen mailing list, calling it the Apostolic Faith in Portland, Oregon. Without the mailing list, no Seymour-authorized copies of the Zuzu Street organ went forth anymore, and without the continuing spread of news about the work, attendance fell off and the famed Los Angeles work fell into decline. With Parham's and Seymour's star suddenly dimming, the popular Chicago preacher became the brightest star in the Pentecostal firmament. As his influence and reputation grew, he prepared himself for his great declaration. Seeing his opportunity at a Pentecostal conference in May 1910, he publicly proclaimed his new view of sanctification in a message entitled, The Finished Work of Calvary. The bomb was dropped, creating a furor and a firestorm that eventually resulted in the first doctrinal split in this fledgling Pentecostal movement. Durham's teaching, which quickly gained the name The Finished Work, came to be summarized in this way. He alleged that there is no scriptural basis for a two-step experience, justification and regeneration, followed by a separate experience of sanctification leading up to spirit baptism. Everything, forgiveness, salvation, new birth, sanctification, comes to Christians in the atonement, the single finished work of Christ. In that finished work, the old man was crucified, sin was eradicated from the believer's heart, and we'll come back to that point later. In other words, sanctification was immediate, and contemporaneous with regeneration. The Christian received everything at the same time. From regeneration moving forward, then sanctification was progressive. That is, the believer could grow in grace and maturity and the fruit of the Spirit. Only the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as Pentecostals understood the phrase, came as a subsequent experience. 
It seems ludicrous on the face of it that Durham could and did express surprise over the fewer caused by his teaching. But Durham spread the word through the Pentecostal testimony in 1910's initial fight burgeoned into battle in 1911. Now he went on and tried to put William Seymour out of his own church. And suddenly the Lord just took him home. He died. I could share more of that with you, but I want to come back now. What he introduced and what his followers then did. His followers said, no, you don't have to have the sin eradicated. You don't have you don't have that crisis experience anymore of sanctification. You receive everything at the baptism. And so today, many of you have been taught the finished work. And I taught it also. I used to teach salvation is found by faith in what Jesus did at the cross plus nothing. That's simply not true. It's not true. What Jesus did at the cross was to provide for every person in the world the opportunity to become a child of God. He finished the atoning work of sacrifice at the cross. But I have to enter into that atonement and Jesus ministering in the heavenly sanctuary has to circumcise my heart. Now, what happened at a very practical level, and I'm going to say this very quickly, what happened at a very practical level with all of this is that a teaching growing out of this began to take over the Christian church, the the evangelical, the, the Pentecostal, the charismatic, and The teaching was that you could receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit by faith and there need be no waiting. All you had to do was believe and receive and you could have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That teaching grew out of what I've just shared with you. Now, I also want to share with you that the early teachers coming then into the 40s like Oral Roberts, Catherine Kuhlman, Jack Coe, and many others taught that you could receive the Holy Spirit by faith right now. And they had received what they called the gift of the Holy Spirit. But carnality also came into their lives. Some had affairs. 
Some ended up as alcoholics. These were leading lights. Some, like Amy Simple McPherson, got in trouble with a man. These men and these women started out believing they could be baptized in the Holy Spirit without this experience of entire sanctification. And as that experience grew and blossomed of what they called the Holy Spirit, and someone said to me, where in the scripture does it teach that you can have the baptism of the Holy Spirit without holiness? And of course, Samson is a prime example of this in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit moved on him powerfully. He was appointed from birth as a Nazarite. He didn't cut his hair. And of course, he was snared by women. And he walked in sin. He was not sanctified. And yet the power of God moved through him, but eventually he lost his eyesight and he became a slave. And then in one great, gigantic, thrusting out. He brought down the house on the Philistines and himself and died. There are other examples of people in the Old Testament who walked by the power of the Spirit but did not walk in holiness. But what's absolutely evident in today's church is that we don't have any fire. Jack Coe, Oral Roberts, Catherine Kuhlman, they didn't have the fire either. But what is the fire? If you go back to Isaiah, the sixth chapter, he walks into the temple, and there... He sees the presence of the Almighty God. He stands in the back. He's in utter awe. He says, Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And the seraph, the most powerful of God's warrior angels, burning with fire. Took the tongs and took a coal off the altar and went and touched Isaiah's lips. And he was purged and he was cleansed and his sins were forgiven. And Isaiah is one of the most holy of men who write in the Old Testament. He's frightening, he's so holy. That fire represents righteousness. Jesus was introduced by John the Baptist. Luke, the third chapter, verse 16, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, 
but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So fire is both for holiness and to burn the wicked. Fire is going to do both of those functions. And then you come to the book of of John. No, let's go. Let's go to chapter one. The book of Acts. He gave this command. This was Jesus. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Please, if we're going to receive power, it is first and foremost power to live above sin. It is power to live a godly life. It is power to overcome the darkness. Now, sometimes this power will be supernatural. And many times I have mistaken the baptism of the Holy Spirit just for the supernatural. But the supernatural is a minor note. The major note is power to live a righteous life. Power to be holy. Now, please let me say this. We're almost out of time. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not about Disney World, Fantasia. It's not about you being someone great. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is about you being made holy. I believe that being entirely sanctified and baptized in power and fire, I believe that's the same thing. Azusa Street did not initially connect those two, but as they moved forward, they understood that the coming of the Holy Spirit only happened in the lives of people who had been made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I've shared with you today, and you're going to have to think through and pray through and begin to understand what your theology of the finished work has done to you in holding you back from seeking all that God would have for you in the ability and the power to live above sin. We're going to talk more about this tomorrow. You shall receive power. Almighty God, Would you make this plain? 
Would you bring deep conviction to our hearts? Lord, thank you. Amen. This has been a very painful, difficult time for me. I won't go into why, uh, but I'd love to hear from you. Any words of encouragement or prayer, I would love to hear from you. And tithes and offerings that the Holy Spirit is prompting you, would you bring those? You can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. That's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Also, you can go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, nationalprayerchapel.com, and give online. Now, one more time, Pastor Jim Kerwin, The Forgotten Blessing, and you can find that at finestoftheweet.org. Finestoftheweet, one word, dot org. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley, National Prayer Chapel. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Jesus Christ.